0: Five, four, three, two, one, zero, all engine runner, off. we have a liptoff. Hey, space enthusiasts, my guest this week is the head of strategy of well-known publicly listed German space company OHB, Egbert Jan van der Veen. He's also the head of their corporate venture capital arm, which has invested in a number of well-known space companies, including some that have been on this podcast. So he has a really good view of the space sector in general, and also specifically about what is going on with space startups. Enjoy. By the way, happy Thanksgiving's holiday to our many listeners in the United States. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by NanoAvionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator, Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide, Check them out at isunet.edu. And just some final things before we start the episode about ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple or Spotify. If you want us help expand our work, you can do so and support us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. And we'll also put that link in the episode notes. And lastly, you can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Hey, welcome back, everybody! Today, I'm here with expert Jan van der Weyn from OHB. Hi, Egbert.
1: Hi. Thank you for uh, for the invite. I'm looking forward to being here.
0: <laughs> it's a pleasure. I think this this one was was long overdue. As um, I was just we were just chatting right before we started recording. That we're kind of talking all the time, anyway, so We might as well record one of the conversations. It might be you know interesting for some of the other people in space. But why don't you start telling us what what you actually do?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so my name is Eckbert. I'm uh, working in uh, space since, I don't know, 14, 15 years right now. Uh, my background is more into technology and innovation management. Uh, I did a study on mm. industrial engineering and management. And then basically, uh, I kind of rolled into the space sector <laughs> by chance. It um, was not really mm. planned. I uh, didn't really study anything like that. When I was a child, I was very much enthusiastic about space. I went to the Space Expo in North. When I was very young and I got the early flavor there, but never really thought I could work in that. And then I just kind of rolled into it. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I basically did uh, technology and innovation for a long time with the DLR and then also at OHB, I was responsible for all technology and uh, and innovation development there for the coordination of those activities for about I think six or seven years and now mm-hmm. since four years uh, my official role is uh, is head of strategy for OHB, uh which means that mm-hmm. I pay all of the future development uh, for for our company, where do we go in the future, what is our strategic plan, uh, part of that is also corporate development. So so the development of new areas, mm-hmm. the integration of several companies within each other, the, the mm-hmm. sales of, of companies as well. We haven't done that so far, but we have only acquired so far, but, but theoretically mm-hmm. it could be part of it. Um, and then I have a small little hobby on this side, which is taking ridiculously amount of my time, more than it should normally, but that's, uh, that's venture mm-hmm. capital. So I'm... Uh, mm. Director for the OGB Venture Capital, which is a strategic uh, corporate venture
0: capital arm of the OGP group. Mm, that's, that's that's a nice hobby to have. But let's start at the beginning of some of the things you said. So You, you said you got into space by chance. Could you just expand a little bit on that? I'm, I'm just asking because, you know, I think there's more and more people who are not yet in space, but they're sort of interested mm-hmm. um, to get into space. So these kind of stories are interesting to see, you know, how people actually slip into the space sector yeah
1: sure so i think for me it was just uh, I, w- I wanted to go to bremen i had a, had a girlfriend at the time and uh, she was german and uh, she was studying in bremen mm-hmm. and I thought, okay what could i do there so i was looking for uh, a way to do a master thesis and uh, found mm-hmm. several Several ways to do that in Bremen, and one of them was at the, the DLR, Institute of Space Systems, which was, an mm-hmm. institute that was just recently funded there, founded there, so it was completely new, and they had a, a very nice uh, a master thesis uh, work on disruptive space technologies, uh, which mm-hmm. was Very cool. Uh, I thought it was really nice. So um, yeah, I decided to create something with space. (laughs) I can use my background there. I focus a little of my focus on technology and innovation, which I did more in my studies. I was focusing more on different kind of agricultural and sustainable technologies, but I thought space, why not? It's very cool as well. Mm -hmm. So then I kind of rolled into that. And then uh, after my master thesis, I kept on there as a researcher. I, I wrote my PhD on the topic. Mm-hmm. Didn't finish it But but really came very far. Uh, yeah, and I'm focusing mainly on the topic of uh, disruptive uh, technologies, where then I did also several studies for, for ESA, the European Commission, and DLR internal studies. So back then there was a huge wave of, of disruptive technologies. What are they? And it was a new term. And then we tried to find that out. What, what does it mean for space? Let's say, how do technology Innovation cycles work in the space sector. Yeah.
0: Uh, around what time was that Roughly, which years are we talking about here? Oh,
1: uh, 2009, 2010, I think. Two, yes, I'm okay. Yeah, some super later.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm only asking, right? Because this is, you know, it's clearly, as I imagine this is clearly sort of like, I mean, right now, space is more and more in the news, right? And people are sort of talking about space being disruptive and disruptive technologies. But back then, this was a much more, you know, uh, less publicly known field. So kind of with the hindsight, I'm kind of curious just to know sort of like what, what would have been examples of the disruptive technologies people were looking at in space.
1: I mean, back, back in the, in those days, I mean, uh, so we, what we did is uh, several forecast studies and everything. So it's good to see, let's mm-hmm. say, hindsight what worked and what didn't work uh, yeah. we, we very much believed into the 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 of of uh, of of uh, 3D printed technologies which. Mm-hmm partially happened partially didn't i mean most satellites mm-hmm. flying nowadays have uh, 3d printed uh, metallic parts uh we of course also said that, like in-space manufacturing that has taken a little bit longer but but it's starting now as well uh so those kind of things uh, we're focusing new batteries technologies new solar cells and those kind of things those have been taking a little bit longer but are coming there as well flexible solar panels for example uh, yeah so so those things are are coming but a little bit more slowly than we thought uh rise of onboard processing, we said, which is definitely mm-hmm. uh, a, a case which is happening right now, both in the telecom and earth observation. So that's definitely mm-hmm. uh, something to focus on. Uh, we also forecasted at the time quantum technologies in space, focusing mainly on QKD, but also quantum sensing, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is currently now happening as well. I mean, basically, we, we, what we did is well, the forecast we said, okay, next five years. What we realized right now, back then, we should have probably said ten years. <laughs> Everything in space just yeah. moves a little bit slower than than we we initially thought, but but it is getting there. So you can already see that uh, yeah. some of them are being let's say operationalized, commercialized, uh, at least more talked about partially. So uh,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. yeah That's this famous quote. I forgot somebody who said, right, the technology it like tends to move. It tends to move slower than people think in the short term, but then faster like over the longer time frame. It's probably, yeah. I guess, hopefully true for for space as well. So like, I think pretty much all of the things you mentioned are basically sort of on the hardware upstream side. Just out of curiosity, did you guys sort of think about like downstream, what might happen in downstream as well?
1: Um, so the focus at that time was really, I mean, disruptive space technology focusing on hardware. So we basically only mm. have launchers and satellites and then primarily yeah. focus on satellite technology. So downstream, not too much. No, um, because mm. it's, I mean it's more related to other areas for me the downstream space is is a enabler it's a logistics kind of thing but it's not a, a driver I mean the biggest thing happening on downstream for example are, are automated uh, processes and then artificial intelligence and machine learning and those kind of things mm-hmm. and I don't think that the
0: driver mm-hmm. in
1: that space uh, it's just a, a user potentially.
0: And then uh, you said your PhD thesis was on the same topic
1: yes yes focusing on disruptive uh, innovations yeah at the, the time then I did a project together with, with OHB and then I was asked to join OHB and then mm. <laughs> it was not so easy to write a PhD on the side and uh, and do a management job yep. company so slowly you know the the, <laughs> the PhD thesis became older and older and it didn't progress and at some point.
0: Yeah 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 did you start uh, in your time at OHB did you start directly on the sort of in the business um, management side or did you ever work in a, in a technical role?
1: So, so I started in, in pre-development uh, doing studies and uh, technology so I was working a lot of different proposals and those kind of things. And then slowly mm. I, I built up the area of, of technology coordination uh, of the department was called. So department was first me and then i hired a couple of new people uh, because mm. more and more need for example to do 3d printing and to do software technologies and those kind of things and so i built up a small apartment uh, uh, with a number of smart guys who were really enthusiastic uh, focusing on yeah different kind of things like uh, creative uh, maker space for example development we did mm. crazy stuff basically we were basically the the creative uh, guys within the within the company so um yeah so that's uh, that's what i did then but yeah, I mean, I was also responsible for many of the r and that we developed. So, uh, for example, I did the entire uh, 3D printing or additive manufacturing uh, development uh, for, for the company for about two to three years. So I know that quite well. Uh, I focus also on implementing art- uh, augmented reality and virtual reality in the clean room environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those kind of things I did. So it usually was that um, I, I start different activities and then at some point <laughs> try to find somebody else who is more of a user or mm-hmm. more technical field to do it but um that was really mm, nice yeah. uh, to, to be at the forefront or at least at the start of many development
0: yeah it's kind of interesting I guess to some extent you're sort of tr- almost straddling like business aspects and then some some of the technology things right mm-hmm. i was just going to ask you sort of one interesting question to ask about you know so deep tech company always is sort of the how how the business side works together with the engineering side mm-hmm. how that interaction is yes
1: yeah so, so i mean I, I know the technical side or at least the, the difficulties you have in technology development for space quite good uh, I mean, honestly, the business side only for me came later, about 2019. Or until, yeah, 2019 I started doing this this uh, strategy and over to venture capital and, and those kind of things. So then I started looking more into business models, um, uh, to be honest, mm-hmm. and more, let's say, product development where that was not really something I, of course, you look at the return of invest, for example, or business case for technology development or innovation. Uh, I mean, innovation, let's say technology development in itself doesn't help you. As much it only becomes the innovation once you you are able to market it and to successfully use it. So. Um, So I was thinking on that, but to really look into a business plan of a company and everything was completely new for me. But uh, you're learning by doing, so that's always good.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And can you, uh, because not everybody may know, I mean, I suspect some of our European listeners know OHB quite quite well, but we have a lot of listeners also in North America, other parts of the world. Can you just kind of give us a summary of, you know, what OHB does, like its core businesses, and then kind of delve into the strategy to the extent you can talk about it?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So OHB is a family-owned company, which is... Uh, a little bit weird into the, this domain. I mean, most, uh, let's say, people that, that make large satellites or satellite system integrators are uh, larger companies like Airbus and, and Taz, Linear Space, or Boeing, or Lockheed, and, and those companies. Uh, so, so we are a family-owned company. We were founded in, I think, 1985, um, when mm-hmm. basically uh, the company was bought by uh, Mrs. Fuchs, uh, who basically just wanted to do, didn't want to sit at, at home anymore. So she just bought a company. It was a hydraulics company making things for the German submarines. And then uh, her husband, who was a very big uh, space fan, and was also an engineer working at erno which is currently Airbus, he said, OK, mm. I'm, I'm going to work in this company as well. And I'm going to transform it into a space company. So they just started doing, yeah, I mean, uh, high-altitude rockets and, and um, yeah, basically small fridge-sized satellites. I mean, right now, you're called CubeSats. But then there were small sats, basically. Yeah. Uh, And then basically over the years, started trying to tackle bigger and bigger projects, uh, taking a lot of risk. I mean, this new space approach that you currently have right now, they were really at the forefront of that. They were taking a lot of risk doing very things very uh, unconventionally, let's say like that, Uh, Mm -hmm. to to fit, let's say, Russian intercontinental missile uh, launchers and trying to find German military satellites on there and and everything uh, to get it as cost effective as possible. Mm. then uh, basically through this approach they were able to beat let's say the incumbent into the field uh, so which was Airbus which is now Airbus uh, within Germany and uh, and basically yeah take a large part of the share of the market there and then uh, over the years uh, we started buying more companies uh, so we buy bought for example Caracovaci space which is now OHP Italy which is also a system mm-hmm. integrator based in Italy uh, we founded uh, a company Luxembourg Luxspace that's also a small satellite mm-hmm. integrator uh, uh, we bought uh, OGB Sweden from... Um SSC, I think. Yeah. So we, basically, we're a group of uh, satellite integrators. Uh, what's special about us is that we, uh, we're we not vertically integrated. So uh, we don't go down mm-hmm. the value chain. We don't make any of this, make some of the subsystems, but not many, mm-hmm. and not many of the components. Um, okay. So most of the, our competitors are more vertically integrated than we are. Uh, for us, that's, I mean, it's a weakness and a strength. Uh, the, the strength is you can make very good system level designs. Uh, you don't yeah. have, you know, we have to take this component because it belongs to our group. We were much more flexible when it comes to that, which is very mm-hmm. helpful. Uh, of course, you cannot really do leverage or scale effects. I mean, uh, our competitors can can do it more easily. <laughs> they can do okay. If we don't make the cost on system level, we'll make the, co- the 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 profit on the component level. Uh, but but you know, overall, I think this is a, a benefit that we had over the last couple of years, uh, and we've we've become very strong in this. So uh, we've grown quite significantly over the last few years, about 3,000 employees now, uh, which is interesting
0: there. On the, on the vertical integration side, I just have to ask, I mean, there's been so much, you know, news about, you know, not only in space, but in general about like supply chain issues globally, right? Um, have you guys, has that held you back in any way because you're not vertically integrated? I mean, I remember having this conversation, I think there was at satellite in DC or this year, I asked somebody like about the waiting time for something very simple, like a star tracker. And he was like, oh yeah, 12 months. <laughs> like, what are you kidding yeah. me? <laughs>
1: <laughs> that, that's short. I mean, the best depends. <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, it, it, it really depends. So um, it, it it hinders us in the, to a certain way, yes. I mean, um, uh, let's say the large part of a company is focused more on institutional projects and those have very long lead times in any case. Mm. So yeah. there, I mean, you've already ordered it. It get, gets more to a problem when your suppliers don't get their parts. I mean, the triple E parts or those kind of mm. things, if they require on that, they will have delays, which means we will have delays um yeah that, that really definitely impacts us um but but it's less the case for example if you would have a, a truly 100 percent commercial business and you can just not you know you're supposed to deliver a satellite within a year and you have to wait another year for for your components to arrive i mean that impact is is a lot harder of course mm-hmm. um but but yes of course we, we feel it very much as well now
0: yeah. if you, you you're mentioning institutional projects so does that mean you're sort of Main customer base is uh, people like space agencies?
1: Currently, still, yes. Uh, We we do so. We have several parts of the companies, OHB System, which is based in Germany, where we mostly Mm -hmm. do institutional business. Uh, The other companies, the smaller satellite integrators, are focusing more and more on commercial business. Um, So, there there it's a lot more of a mixed. um, And then commercial business is always a bit, I mean, you have export business. So, for example, selling to another government, we can say it's commercial my export business and then really truly commercial business so it's a, it's a bit of a mix there and depending on which companies are usually the smaller your satellite gets the the larger let's say a potential commercial uh, uh part gets so it's mm. basically I mean very large satellites commercial contacts is only telecommunication yeah mm. yeah. A one so, and a half ton commercial satellite that much
0: <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, so for the um your I guess subsidiaries or the parts of the company that pursuing more um commercial customers so we're talking I guess CubeSats and small sets there
1: focusing more on small sets So we do kubesats as okay. well, but we're not a kubesat platform provider or anything okay. like that. We provide kubesat okay. <laughs> systems, and if we talk about system, then it's here we arrange the launch, we arrange the, the development of the payload, we maybe procure the platform or, or something like that, and we basically offer an end-to-end solution to a customer.
0: Yeah. Okay, so somewhere we're talking sort of, you know, those companies would be playing in broadly speaking in the space where some companies playing like, I don't know, like in a particular order, um, actually, no. Let, let me take a particular order, NanoAvionics, our sponsor, thank you very much, uh, AC Clyde space, um, GOM Space, Terran Orbital, Endurosat. like that right
1: those are not our competitors because we don't go into the platform range I mean nano avionics perhaps with a new platform a little bit uh, but we're doing in a different class a little bit I mean we are focusing on very uh, a bit more higher reliability longer lifetime uh, more currently things so we we go let's say minimum I mean we like I said we we do cubesats if a customer wants it but our real down limit is basically 80 kilograms uh, going okay Programs. Okay.
0: Okay. Um, okay. okay yeah fair enough um i guess most of the people of all of them i mentioned would be smaller although i know i think quite a few of them are sort of talking about um, hmm. um offering bigger platforms now because i guess that's where they see that's where they see the market going is that something you would agree with that we're kind of moving back towards bigger like relatively bigger sizes from like you know like a few years ago the CubeSats was like the big buzzword right yeah
1: i think uh, what a lot of companies uh, uh realize is that, that i mean CubeSat is nice but you you have severe lifetime issues and and severe mm. payload capability issues. I mean, I, I think for example, what Planet or aspire does and what I've able to to get out of the performance of a cubesat is, is quite impressive. Uh, but but you come to certain physical limits. Uh, and if you want to work a business case, I mean, uh, a cubesat, I mean, lifetime one or two years. If you go for a bigger satellite like where we, for example, are, you have seven or eight years. Uh, I mean, in the end, if you look over the lifetime, what the performance will be and your cost per year you know, it very quickly becomes a better option. Take a little bit, yeah, higher reliability, a bit smaller, bigger satellites. So I think especially the class range, let's say 50 to 200 kilograms will, will get a, a bit of a growth. It's only part of the market. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we see a huge growth of course into the two to 500 kilogram, but those are, mm-hmm. uh, not really for platform providers because those are dedicated constellations. Uh, those are yeah. the, 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 the mostly the telecom mega constellations, sure. but those yeah. things you cannot really, uh, yeah, tackle as a platform provider because that's not what we do. I mean, we make a platform and we sell to multiple customers, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 different customers and we put different payloads on there. And that's a little bit what our market is.
0: Mm-hmm. The, yeah, the other, the other interesting thing that I noticed that may be going on with some of the um, integrators is, is some sort of vertical integration, right? Uh, and it even starts as far back as the launch providers. So it's sort of like, you know, launch providers, um, I guess to some extent, Rocket Lab and then Astra said, okay, I guess they realized they have to fill their launches, right? So they started kind of doing satellite platforms as well. And then some of the satellite integrator guys, like um, I mentioned before, um, Terran Orbital, um, I guess they started realizing they need to, like, you know, um, create demand for their platforms. So they're like, like, okay, let's do our own constellation for something, you know, like typically (laughs) EO. but yeah, yeah. so it seems to be this kind of like general vertical integration going on I guess sort of like trying to generate demand is that also something you're seeing and how, how would OHB think about this
1: yeah I mean it's, it's definitely true I mean the grass is always greener on the other side uh, you know <laughs> I, yeah. I mean for rocket manufacturer into satellite I mean it's a bit of a different reason why Rocket Lab did it of course they were were very much funded yeah. with back, and yeah. they managed to get some good opportunities there but but also like companies like uh, uh, Spire uh, for example of Satellite yeah. as a Service uh those Mm -hmm. kind of things so they come a little bit into to other areas as well and of course that does make sense because it broadens up your markers you try to grow to an area where you think that the profit margins are are bigger um so that that makes sense to to diversify uh on the other hand i'm not sure that the vertical integration is always the way i mean if you check the planet Mm. i mean they they build and design their own satellites in a time when basically there was no market
0: for cubes yeah and Mm.
1: they, they they arguably they really say okay actually right now we would Do it again. If we would start from scratch now, we would not do that. We would buy components on the market, use a competitive industry, you know, uh, that's much more, much better. At the time, you had no market for for such a thing. So, Mm. vertically integration is good if you have a lot of money behind you, you can dominate the Mm -hmm. market, you know, you become a monopoly or by Mm -hmm. pushing that price difference. Uh, If there's already an established market out there, that might not be the best way to go, to be honest. Um, What a lot of companies do, they focus more. They go to an area where uh, currently there is no market. So, I mean, satellite as a service is a, is a new concept, which which is mm-hmm. uh, for a lot of satellite manufacturers an, an interesting point of view because you go more, let's say, in a cooperation with the operator point of view. Usually the operators, if they're successful, they make a lot more money than developing a satellite. So mm-hmm. that, that does make sense. Um, yeah, so this is also an area where we're we're thinking of going for Australia. Of course, I'm going to say too much about Australia, but we're sure, just... Sure developing our, our downstream domain, uh, which focuses especially on uh, yeah services and, and product based on Earth observation and, and satellite data. Um, so that's something that we're developing. Uh, we as a company, we tried we decided to split our company into three parts. So the space systems part, which is the satellite integration, the aerospace part where we focus on uh, launcher components, where we develop also our own launcher, Rocket Factory Augsburg, and we make airplane components. And then the third part is OHB Digital. And there we really try to focus our activities that we focus on the downstream. So we, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, make a lot of uh, products and services, focus on the maritime industry, uh, focus on the railway industry. Uh, We focus on everything basically involving critical infrastructure. So... Mm -hmm. Line monitoring. uh we, we do uh, air, airports, uh, logistic fields, harbors, those kind of things. That's a little bit our our current focus of, of our interest there, also of the downstream applications. But we also focus, for example, with our BPC activities, on more uh, agricultural applications. Uh, for example, with our investment into Constellar. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, or um, yeah, basically activities focus on on mitigating the impacts of, of climate change and carbon uh, uh, emissions monitoring. Uh, it's very mm-hmm. broad. Uh, let's say a number of activities we're doing. Some of them were very yeah. advanced, and some of them a little bit less. Uh, but this is the areas we're pushing.
0: Mm-hmm. What would you say, is sort of the underlying DNA of the company? So, like when you know those maybe people come together from in a big corporate meeting or offset or something from those you know three different parts of the companies. What is sort of like the shared understanding, culture? Whatever you want to call it, Um, yeah.
1: So there's there's, within OHB, there's a large degree of pragmatism. uh, I would say (laughs) we just Mm -hmm. try to to do stuff. We don't have a very high uh, uh, hierarchy. There's not uh, There's only I think four layers within the company. Mm -hmm. That's fairly quickly. Decisions can be taken very quickly. Also because we have a a family ownership, so the the CEO of our company is also uh, representing the seventy percent shareholder of the company. (laughs) The
0: CEO is that's important. The CEO is, is from the family, right? Yes.
1: Okay. So he's yeah. the son of the founders of the company. Mm. Uh, uh, and that makes things very easy because yep. you know you have to make a decision and and that can be done i mean within certain boundary conditions can be done very very quickly um I and mean,
0: it's kind it's kind of, it's kind, of it's kind of like space spacex without tweeting right
1: exactly exactly <laughs> yeah that yeah that makes it very uh very easy to do let's say like it's also the i mean we are very much a family environment there um mm. you know the, the 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 former founder of the company uh, Christa fuchs she's like 83 84 right now and still comes to the office every day. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> that we wow. still see her she still goes into meetings complaining that we spend too much money and we have to be more uh, <laughs> let's say cost mm-hmm. effective and those kind of things so I mean that's that's definitely something that, that lives through um, the son of the of the of the CEO uh, is also quite often in the company now and getting more and more active um, so yeah it's, it's a really it's a family company there and uh, it's not only the family that matters but all of the employees are, are part of the family and that makes it uh, makes it very nice um, of course it gives family family has, has some tr- trouble of course as well sometimes it's always uh, it, it's it's in the way it's a certain soft thing it's about a lot about relations and everything but i think overall it makes us very still very effective and uh and very agile which is something that you usually don't get in a large aerospace company
0: mm. yeah i mean four for layers of hierarchy for traditional large aerospace majors sounds <laughs> like paradise probably. yes
1: uh, yeah and for 3,000 employees it's also quite a lot yeah.
0: yes 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 so um, I mean family on but I mean you guys are also publicly listed I think on a German stock exchange right
1: yes uh, we were publicly listed uh, so 30% of our stock is free float uh, mm. so that's basically publicly traded
0: um, okay and I guess that sort of brings you know certain things with it right you know quarterly or half yearly reporting maybe um, I guess probably some investment banks are uh, equity researchers following OHP.
1: yes yeah so yeah um, so the, the the reason why we did it at the time is to create uh transparency also for our company mm-hmm. for our customers um because of course this kind of reporting need that you have to do adds a little bit of transparency that money is not wasted or those kind of things of course normally if you would have a company with 70 percent family ownership and 30 percent free float it's not really investor let's say super mm-hmm. attractive for a large investor to institutional
0: like investment. yeah yeah so
1: yeah. it's 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 what we have is a lot of small uh uh, shareholders uh, um so that's that's not uh, too let's say interesting the good thing is it, it requires. i mean the 70 percent keeps control over the company and so there's no nobody else mm. stepping in which is always the problem with such company that a large chinese investor steps in and takes control of so those kind of things that will never happen with us so that makes it uh Makes
0: it good. Mm. And I guess on the upside, as usual, if, if you are listed, depending on, well, depending on where the share price is, um, it can be used, the uh, shares can be used as an acquisition currency as well, in theory. Exactly.
1: exactly.
0: Okay, so maybe let's go through the three parts a little bit. So um, in space systems, so on the integration side, so I'm wondering since you guys are, as you said, you know, value-added integrators and you don't typically do the components yourselves, um, is there any sort of opportunity you see in in certain satellite components? And I'm asking that because, you know, we have a lot of entrepreneurs and potential entrepreneurs listening and you know maybe there's something you've seen is like oh i wish i could get like i don't know like you said better solar panels or or something Mm -hmm. right
1: so so for me i mean um for for me what's more interesting is to develop something that's uh so i think there's a lot of potential in the market to find cost-effective solutions uh, mm-hmm. there let's say so you always have different areas you know you can be technically a lot better than what is currently out there that of course is a, is a little bit difficult to do as you're going to establish player uh if you become a mm-hmm. director, it's, it's really great to be cost-effective and there you have a huge potential because honestly a lot of uh uh Let's say current components, uh, uh, which are being developed in the space industry, are, are ripe for disruption when it comes to a cost point. Um, it's
0: just true. It's so expensive. I know. I mean, that's one of. I mean, as you know, I'm. I haven't been in space that long, right? Maybe like six yeah. years, but that's one of the first things I noticed. is like that stuff is so expensive. Like, what does a propulsion unit cost? Three hundred, three hundred to five hundred thousand dollars. You know, for mm-hmm. uh, yeah, or Star Trek. Why does a Star Trek cost like whatever it is, thirty, forty thousand dollars? I mean, it just seems so expensive. Yeah, I mean, but that's a little
1: bit the market, and the market dominated up until ten years ago was by ECSS standards, at least within Europe. Uh, and, and NASA has its own standards book. And it's just an entire row of, of tests and, uh, and things that you have to do, which is great for a science mission, you know, or a human spaceflight mission. You want to make absolutely mm-hmm. sure you're building things for the first time, so you try to test every on every level, you know, you do from, from the most single component to, you know, to the little bit subsystem level and system mm-hmm. level. All of the tests, you do stacked on each other and you make absolutely sure that there can be no failure um, right. if you go for more operational mission or more commercial mission the fact that you've already built it and you're using the same components you know it, mm. perhaps you only have to do an overall system level test um, which makes just a lot more sense and yeah. that just really decreased the, the cost I mean the biggest cost uh, in, the, in the space industry is is not you know the hardware or those kind of things it's it's the time it takes to make something the amount of tests that you have to do the testing facilities are expensive you know you have a marching Mm -hmm. army sitting around you know if you do testing they have to wait and those kind of things so the majority of the cost is in there but the good thing is the market is also moving more and more away from this this uh, very conservative approach i mean we call it now new space it's just taking Mm -hmm more risk it's or let's say handling risk differently. It could mm-hmm. also be, I mean, one of our first projects that we did uh um was for example the Zalou constellations for the German military. Uh, you could have built mm-hmm. the constellation with uh with uh, with a number of well let's say two very high reliable satellites uh but what we did we, we just built six and <laughs> were mm-hmm. very less reliable let's say like that or let's yeah. say did not fully tested and we said okay if there's there I mean they're they were still reliable they're still all flying they're are still doing very good, um, but but we had let's say uh, uh, a reliability or redundancy on an overall system level, which which wasn't done at the time, you know, right? Um, and and therefore you're you're able to put the different risk away from like a single system or a single subsystem or a single component. You you ter- treat it as an overarching uh, methodology which uh, which focuses on the entire thing. So not only then your satellites, but also your ground system and everything like mm-hmm. that, and try to mitigate what it can I do to make a cost-effective solution and by putting the risk at the right place Um, and and that's something that we've been very strong in in the beginning Mm. of course you can save uh, a lot of uh, money by by balancing this out uh, uh, in, a, in a very good way
0: yeah so besides people um besides some of the things where we talked about sort of like satellites getting relatively bigger again and sort of what you just mentioned um people getting um lowering costs any other sort of noteworthy trends on satellite integration you think that are worth pointing out
1: i mean on, on satellite integration in itself um so the thing is always the more satellites that you build the cheaper it will get which is always the sure. case i mean it's the yeah. same thing with launcher i mean cadence of launcher you know the higher your that's yep. the cheaper your launcher will be That's the same thing for, for satellites um, and and of course what we see right now with all of these mega constellations that people are building more and more recurring uh, items and therefore mm-hmm. processes change quite a lot I mean what I said already before you try to focus on more on a system level but also the way that you produce satellites uh, becomes more of a I wouldn't say serial production but often more kind of a batch production which is more usual
0: yeah, yeah.
1: and therefore you have different tools so you can use you can optimize different processes to that, you can standardize different things and things just become the quality shifts a little bit from doing one quality process-wise very good to focusing on a standard set of processes uh, uh, focusing uh, yeah, to, to try to get your quality there better. So that's that's a lot of things that are included there. One of my, my, my most favorite examples is that uh, you basically, you build a, a satellite in a, a, one of the, the people doing large telecom mega constellations. what they did is they tested their satellite exclusively like really really went down into detail tested everything and then everything what came afterwards for example for the thermal model they just put the infrared camera they put all of the heaters on or they put external heaters on and just checked if this is the same as the reference model of the first mm-hmm. one they fully tested if there mm-hmm. is li- less than whatever so many percentage deviation it's checked past you know and that just makes things a lot easier or a lot cheaper you know this you only have to do this yeah. once you don't have to do it thoroughly but you don't have to do it for everything afterwards uh, which yeah. is
0: Better. yeah and, then, and that that'll make sense and like you said it's kind of a going from really low volume production not to yeah i agree i wouldn't call it mass manufacturing by any stretch of the imagination but i mean sort of at the extreme end i think i think spacex is doing something like 200 Starlink satellites a month now and mm. so that that is of course very different from historical uh, satellite integration yeah. Um how about um we're talking mostly hardware and i've realized that there seem to be a lot of things going on on the software side as well i mean there's a number of startups that have been funded that sort of claim they're improving the software part of the design and production process in some ways that also something you're seeing
1: uh, for satellite manufacturing or in general for yeah, yeah. Um, yeah
0: well for, for for yeah for for um, design and manufacturing and, and then there's obviously stuff for on orbit operation but I was I meant more for design yeah. and
1: uh, integration yeah, so, so for me the most interesting is, is model-based system engineering which is really on on uh, let's say hype or not high, high but very much of a push happening right now so the problem that you have is that that's uh, uh, with, with let's say mass customization of what we're doing so basically you create different platforms where you do different customers and everything like mm-hmm. that uh, the, the 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 complexity gets really high and you don't really want to repeat everything yourself and you want mm. to automate processes as much as possible and you can really do this with with model based system engineering uh, basically reducing the complexities there for example different simulation uh, loops you can do automatically you can do a, a fact check for example is this possible or not and as many different things that are happening there it takes different roles into the early design of the uh, of the uh, satellite it's called more let's say concurrent design approach it's more implemented in there and later mm-hmm. stages it's more the model based system uh, so that's that's a strong push that's happening right now it's also being picked up by, by ESA right now luckily so they're pushing that quite a lot as well and I think the the company that, that adapts those kind of tools uh, you know a product life management system and a model by system engineering system uh, will definitely have an edge advantage there
0: okay let's move on to to the second uh, part of the group, um, Aerospace. But, but as you mentioned, this includes um, sort of the, the, the launch part um, through RFA Rocket Factory Augsburg. Do you just want to give us a quick summary of, you know, people who don't know what, what RFA is and what those guys do? And why did you guys decide to get involved there
1: yeah so so rfa is uh, we're building our own uh, micro launcher the rfa one um, which can launch for for multiple different uh, launch sites over the world which is which is good it's basically fully designed to fit into uh to containers so it's it's nice and easily shippable mm-hmm. uh which is uh, good it's designed to be the l- most low-cost solution that you can get within this domain so i mean everything i mean if you come to to RFA, everything is focused on on low-cost production as much as possible the Use for example three D printing as well. They don't really do all of the quality checks that we do for our satellite components. They they build it once, they check it, and then afterwards, you know, they they Mm. they look for a more stable process and they don't uh, do all of the the fatigue tests and all of whatever you need on normal components. So everything is focused on the low cost manufacturing as much as possible. For their tanks, for example, they use uh, large uh, brewing fats brewing tanks basically a manufacturer for that and build stainless steel. I
0: guess I guess. they are based in Bavaria so they are can based see
1: in yeah so they, they they use that so you know they don't use uh, they use unconventional uh, supply chain as well they're, they, they're mm. almost nothing of them is uh, the traditional aerospace uh, supply chain try to find as much uh, yeah low cost solutions as possible I mean their, their entire test setup for example has been just you know filling uh, large uh, so they made a test stand themselves which is just a metal frame and then basically it's shielded by several containers just filled with sand <laughs> and then they just you know they do the launch testing on that so it's it's yeah. a, it's an extremely pragmatic approach which they take it's an extremely motivated team as well they have experience so the the main cto Stefan bruschank has a good experience mm. from uh from rocket lab as well mm. uh, which which is you know it's just helpful you know if you've been there and helped develop a rocket then it's just uh, great to to duplicate that experience uh, it's a very interesting engine design that they have, uh, which is uh, yeah, which is very good. So yeah, so yeah, a cool team there. And the the reason that we try to to get into that is we saw that that there is really a potential market there for a, a European launcher development into that range. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Ariane is good for you know all of the large satellites that we have to launch. The Vega covers its part as well, but on the lower scale, which focuses more really on a cost competitive product and on uh, on smaller satellites focusing more on for example nurse observation uh, there is really a large market opportunity there so uh, mm. yeah that's why we decided uh, we want to get into this as well we found a really good team partially uh, uh, coming from uh, from New Zealand back but also partially from the engineers that are working at MTA Aerospace which is um, yeah. One of the companies making uh, uh, large components, not only for Ariane but also for for SLS and uh, for some other—I'm not quite sure if you can say—but definitely some other uh, U.S. launchers as well. So they make mm-hmm. large tanks and large technical domes and, and those kind of things. Um, yeah, and so the, the combination of the smart people already having experience in large aerospace products and and uh, let's say more new space environment, uh, yeah, made us think that we have really something unique there. So it's
0: also the mm-hmm. developer launcher. Yeah, yeah. And I, I should say for listeners, actually um the, the two co-founders, uh Stefan Brishank and Jörn Sproman were on the podcast about I think about fifty episodes ago. I should really have them on <laughs> again, but <laughs> the episode is out there. Yes. <laughs> you can from about two years ago. So people can listen and you know and see how that how that all went. And this is um just to put some numbers on this, I think this is, uh, payload size is about a ton or so here. Yes, and twelve hundred kilograms in, in a
1: the the first launch, of course. Um but but that's the, the final aim there to go into that mass range up to twelve
0: hundred kilograms. Is is there an expected date for the first orbital launch?
1: Oh, I, I cannot say
0: that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, pretty sure, I'm pretty sure there's an expected
0: date, but I don't want to say anything wrong. So. <laughs> yeah, no worries, no worries. Okay, cool. Um, let's move on to well, there's OHB. I kind of forgot to ask. Um, OHB, what does that actually stand for? I'm just going to guess the B is for Bremen or something. But so because yes. I mean this is clearly it's, well, it's not a space company never, It's not something space right it's like OHP but but it's, it's like some sort of acronym yeah so OHP
1: doesn't stand for anything uh currently in the beginning, so like I said already in the beginning, the history was this was like a hydraulics company. Uh, so it was called Otto Hydraulic Bremen. So, okay, Otto Hydraulics Bremen. And then they took over the company and they're like, oh, they, we don't really want to change the name. OHB is nice and short. Okay, we're just going to make it uh, Orbitale Hochtechnologie Bremen. So Orbital High oh, Technology Bremen. Okay. And then, you know, that's such a mouthful. And then at some point, they were like, okay, it's just OHB, it's not an abbreviation at all
0: anymore it's just OHP. Um, yeah <laughs> okay that's 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 a cool story anyway
1: pragmatism at its
0: finest yeah you know? <laughs> yes 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 no need to change web domains and well I guess it's before web domains were a thing but anyway <laughs> yeah exactly
1: that, means that you're known by your name and you have to change all of the formats and
0: the letters and those kind of the, things the, yeah the the, the corporate uh, clothing and all of that it's yeah, right. exactly. um okay so moving to OHP digital downstream and I, su- I suspect that's when we kind of move into OHP ventures as well so what, what are some some of the examples of, you know, your downstream activities and then maybe if you want to cross over, you know, some examples of, you know, your investments, your publicly known investments at OHP Ventures.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, so I mean, what we do, for example, there is, is uh, we, we do a resale of our AS data. So the Orcom data that's, mm-hmm do so it's more for the maritime industry so we also make uh, value added solutions based on that so basically just p- for those who don't know what it is by the way IAS is uh, automatic identification signal you can measure uh, you can uh, listen to AAS signals that every ship sends uh, listen from space and you can do the position of every ship over the world as long as they have their AAS receiver turned on which is unfortunately not always the case but yes no. uh, so we basically we're a reseller for this data within Europe we make basically uh, solutions for that so that solutions could be for example for a custom control a ship comes in you can see where the ship has has been in the past uh, what it's been doing and those kind of things but it also could be uh, yeah, for more governmental applications uh, saying okay uh, where are the ships that are, are going under my flag where are they or large shipping companies to check okay where are my currently ships at the moment uh, those kind of things so there's many different applications focusing on that uh, we have a large part working on, uh, on railway as well so most focusing on cybersecurity solutions and power okay railway doesn't have too much to do with space to be honest but it's uh, it's something that belongs to our company and that's growing quite a lot which is also good uh we're also focusing on uh, navigation solutions so fo- focusing more for example on uh jamming and uh, spoofing of, of gnss signals mm-hmm. um, which is very interesting as well we have an entire Group or large, the larger part of the company working on basically operations of satellites uh, and also antennas and ground stations. Mm-hmm. So they're basically focusing on the yeah, basically <laughs> whatever happens on the ground with the satellite. <laughs> um, yeah, so the, the entire the build up of ground station operations and afterwards and those kind of things. But we also do uh, large astronomy uh, telescopes, radio telescopes. So we also. Mm-hmm. Example company in uh, in Chile at the Takama Desert that uh, uh, built different antennas for the European Southern Observatory. We we're building things uh, antennas in South Africa, Thailand, uh, those kind of things. So that's really focusing more on the on the antenna point.
0: Of view. Mm. Mm. Uh, so at OHB Ventures, um, what kind of um, what kind of founders and opportunities would you like to hear from?
1: <laughs> yeah, so I mean, what, what we're really looking uh, towards. I mean, OHB wants to grow the space uh, sector. I mean, basically, we want to mm. ensure that the, the the use of space is is optimized as much as possible. And what we believe is that the downstream has been neglected there's a lot of potential there uh you know there's there's many data coming, for example from the copernicus satellites also landsat mm-hmm. those kind of things there's many Earth observation data coming down um and and it's not been optimally used yet um so that's definitely where we're something looking into so companies focusing more on the downstream focusing partially more on earth observation that's a little bit our strategic focus it doesn't mean mm-hmm. that we're focusing only on that there's definitely if you have an interesting technology for a launcher or an interesting technology mm-hmm. for a satellite or something like that, we, we could be keen to invest as well, but we're focusing more strategically towards the parts that we don't master. So more the mm-hmm. for us. So we're officially what they call midstream. So we don't look at the upstream yep. the components too much, more the downstream. So any kind of somebody has a great application uh, focusing on any kind of space data or space service or using space communications or those kind of things, there we are very interested in. Um, an example of what we did in the past is, for example, Constellar, where it was also recently announced mm-hmm. that we participated to in the latest funding round. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, do, um, they use infrared data from space to measure uh, drought in plants, basically. So they can see mm-hmm. if the temperature on top of plants rises, that the plant is Thirsty, to use very layman's terms. Um, And and therefore, you can see uh, it's a good indicator where there's drought. So you can do precision irrigation techniques, uh, you can apply to that. (laughs) Um, Another company that we invested in is is SeaRoot, which is a combination, for example, of the AES data we sell. So they use uh, historically tracks of where ships went. For example, you want, uh, for example, shipping routes from Hamburg to Los Angeles. And you can automatically see uh, if you want to ship a container, you can see how long it will take, what it will cost and what the CO2 impact will be. Um, So you can basically optimize your routes based on that. And you can also do a past reporting uh, on what the... CO2 impact, uh, uh your container shipper, let's say per container, the CO2 impact that was actually made by this shipping movement. So they can check then, for example, what is the ship, what is the motor that it took, what is the 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 the, the weather that was on the sea and those kind of things. So they can mm-hmm. backtrack and see exactly uh, uh how much fuel was consumed basically transporting this container from, from A to B.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're kind of coming towards the end of this episode. I mean, as usual, we could keep going for hours here talking about space. But let me uh, close by asking a couple of questions. So, you know, if I think first question is relevant both for your strategy activity as well as for ventures. Um, you know, if you were to go back to the time of your master's and PhD and you had to think of disruptive space technologies in 2022, what would be some key highlights of the update? So
1: th- right now, looking into the future, so yeah, for, for me, let's say, uh, the still, onboard processing uh, will definitely change it. I mean, mm. we already see onboard processing quite active now on telecommunication, on earth observation. We, uh, there's nobody who has successfully applied it into a business case yet. Uh, and that, for me, is, is really the future. Uh, I also see the 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 more, let's say, coming up of, uh, of data relay solutions uh, mm-hmm. as well as coming up. I mean, this will really embark a little bit so currently what we've currently always been doing i mean earth observation has always been you observe something and then a few hour later so you can only pro- get the data down and you can really process until yeah. it, it gets to the end user any kind of data you get is is one or two days year old and that makes yeah. it, uh, the economic value of it not as much and i b- believe very much that's that's especially it's on the processing and this data relays will come to a certain kind of now casting where you can really see, okay, mm-hmm. what is happening currently around me now? And that will really, uh, let's say, accelerate uh, the applications of this. It, that in combination with automated uh, processes that you have on on ground. So f- that could be, for example, machine learning or artificial intelligence, but it could also just normally be embedded processes in, in existing digital architecture. Um, that you really come to a way where, you know, an end user sees directly the information that it's that it needs and it's it's recent, you know it's it's less than half a, an hour old. And then all of a sudden a, a range of new applications get as possible and uh, for me that that is the most interesting part which is going to happen in the future and that will will drive a lot of the the developments and innovation
0: yeah that's definitely a good one and, and i'm sure we could kind of talk about some others but but let's leave it here for today and then the last traditional question of every episode is uh, is about science fiction <laughs> you, so, like, what do you like do you like science fiction and if yes what are some some examples of books tv series movies that you like
1: uh, my, my favorite book of science fiction is uh is the dune series uh, mm. Robert. Mm-hmm. i mean I've read this book like fifteen times since I was very very young. So yeah. I mean, I, re- I read many science fiction books, but that's the one that I always keep coming back to. So for mm. me, it's 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 a, a very nice uh, a mixture of science fiction, but also not too science fiction. So it doesn't have mm-hmm. too much computing power and artificial intelligence everything focuses on the Mm. mind so it's a psychological one as well it has very much to do with politics and and for me Mm. that's absolutely fascinating this world of this you know huge sand dunes and huge worms and this kind of like forecasting the future as well yeah yeah
0: it's too, no, too. great it's one of my favorites as well and so said, i think you can come back at various times in your life and it's gonna yeah. you're gonna read it in slightly different ways and uh, you, can,
1: you, you pick up yeah. always different things so for me like i said it's uh it's my must read every one to two years uh the first book uh i mean there, there's many more books i don't read the entire series but the first book definitely.
0: yeah 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 so in, in that way uh fear is the mind killer people don't know <laughs> what that means they have to go read the book thanks so much It was a pleasure yeah. and we'll do Thank this again sometime <laughs> thanks <laughs> bye-bye, <See you>. bye-bye. <laughs> and that's the wrap for another nominal episode of the space business podcast once more if you enjoyed this please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as apple or spotify you can follow us on twitter at podcast underscore space you can support us at www.patreon.com forward slash spacebusinesspodcast. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself, if you have an interesting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. See you for the next episode.